Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code staple two zero. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name, Michael Walker. My friend's name, Silence Follows. This is where we have perfect timing. <laughs> oh, you said friend. You say, I got confused. Yeah, okay. Oh. Okay, you, you do it again. You be you. I'll be me. And, and, and try it again. So, as I said, this is a board gaming podcast, and we're going to talk about board games. First, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we will talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then the topic this week, which is what games are fun, even when you're losing. I'm going to pro at this, Mark, because I'm, 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 I'm covering that 100% of the time. <laughs> so, our as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus. One year ago, we reviewed Aristea by Corvus Belli. This is their board game thing that is kind of sort of in the Infinity Universe. Every time this this comes up, I keep thinking of the never ending story. Why Aristea? Oh, okay. It's it's just the way because there's exclamation point. It just makes me think of it. There don't, is an exclamation point. And there is. Aristea, to, to me anyway, is among the very top tier of two-player in-depth games. The same kind of situation that Battle or Second Edition is in. These are the kind of 90-minute experiences that are worth devoting yourself to. You know, short of the truly epic concepts that are two players. This is where, like, meaty two-player confrontational gaming is, as far as I'm concerned. Since we reviewed it, there have been some expansions, many uh, many character expansions that have been solid like everything else, and the multiplayer expansion, which in my experience was bad, very, very bad, do not recommend, would not go back to. But I'm very pleased to still have Aristea in my collection. I have maintained a complete Aristea collection, and they are going to keep supporting it in the near future with more character packs and other kinds of things. I, I, I'm not quite at the have-all-the-playmats level of support, but other than that, I am pretty much an Aristea completionist. Yeah, it's a great little game. It's, what I like about it is the fact that it's easy to repick 
pack up again, right? The, the rules are solid, easy to remember. It is a sports ball game at its core, yeah. and the miniatures are great. The fact that you pick all sorts of different characters, all great. Yeah, Love I suppose every game I've played of it. I suppose it is sports ball. Well, you know, it doesn't capture it perfectly, but it is. It, yeah, it's trying to use that method. You know what I mean? It's going for that theme. You're absolutely right. It's strange because it's often described by the company as trying to be a MOBA style game, which I don't think is accurate, except in the sense that you have highly asymmetric characters with unique functions that are battling it out on the same field. But then the alternative is to call it a sports ball game, and then my enthusiasm wanes, so I guess I'm trapped between a falsehood and a joy killer. So I guess in those cases, I will stick to the falsehood as ever and create my own reality. It is a MOBA-style game. <laughs> the interesting hook in this one is is the fact that when you score a touchdown, the <laughs> the the end zone changes places and and there's a whole decision space and or strategy of spacing your guys out and trying to force where that person's going to put that end zone and a very interesting gameplay there absolutely and it forces a a real level of dynamism on the board and at the same time has a built-in catch-up mechanism so it really works very very well huge fan of aristea i've played it several times since we reviewed it and we'll keep buying new products as they come out that is by Alberto Abal, Jesus Fuster, David Rosio by Corpus Belli, initially published in 2017, but as I said, continuously expanded since then. So, Walker, now on to the games we played last week. What did you play last week? Mark, I played a very interesting game called Sato, which is Italian for city-state. This is a game I, I kick-started just because it is a game about Italy by an Italian designer. And man, blown away. Uh, it's a bag builder and you're putting cubes in the bag, thumbs up already for us. And you're drawing out a certain number of cubes, sort of like Hansa Teutonica style, because you can also increase, you have a player board where you're increasing how many cubes you're pulling out every turn. And then your first action costs one cube. And then your second one is two, third one is three. Very interesting things there. And the other interesting thing is that it's a closed system. So you're going to get a certain number of colored cubes at the beginning of the game, every player. And then there are no more colored cubes that enter the system. There are, well, I shouldn't say colored because there are black and white. Those are lack of color and all colors. But anyway, that being said. Hyperborea rules of color, yes. Yeah, black and white cubes will enter the system through gameplay, but... As for colored cubes, there are none, no more entering the system. And how that works is that the first single cube of play for your first action goes into the market. So when someone takes a market action, those are the cubes that they're going to buy. So you sort of, you know, giving up cubes and people will take your cubes, then you'll take some of their cubes. And there is a way to, you know, starve the market of a certain color. We only played it two players, so, you know, that, that was definitely evident because, you know, I could take all the green cubes and he could no longer take the bag action. Interesting stuff like that. There's also there's also two levels of scoring. This is another very interesting part of this game. So there's the traditional, you do all your stuff and you get a bunch of points. But throughout the game, you're gaining these cards and you're allowed to take points for them or not because at the end of the game, you're going to start another scoring marker at zero and you get to play one of each of these colors of cards the six different colors and your second scoring marker goes up and then you need some sort of crown tokens to make up the difference between those two score markers and if you don't have the correct crowns then you have to take the lower score there's a lot of other rules in there as well because you're starting with a sort of political system and if you don't have 
your little political marker that slides back and forth the top of your tableau. If you don't have that in the right block, then you're taking your lower score no matter what. But there's all sorts of different things going on. Can't wait to show you this game. This is designed by Simone Caruti Sola, and it's pu- and it's uh, published by uh, GiroClicks.it. I butchered all of that. I apologize. On the topic of enthusiasm, after what felt like a considerable wait, but it wasn't actually that long, I get to play Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor, which was highly recommended by both Walker and by Huey. This is a Kickstarter from Nemesis Games that was published late last year. And I came to it with high expectations, and I strongly disliked the game. I don't really see what the appeal is, because quite frankly, what's happening in Curse of the Last Emperor is it's very much a cooperative troops on a map game. And it's a cooperative troops on a map game with lots and lots and lots of upkeep and lots and lots of systems interlocking, sometimes in an overall pleasing way. But when it comes down to the actual player agency, I didn't feel like there was much to do. You're going to be playing a small number of rounds, even in the long game, you're going to be playing four rounds. And you basically only have those four opportunities to deal with the torrent of awfulness that the game is going to be throwing at you. The difficulty I don't object to. The fact that it's really hard I actually appreciate. But you end up in a death spiral in Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor real, real easy. I went online and indeed I played a couple of turns solo to try to replicate what was going on to see whether my first playing was truly aberrant. And it looks like my first playing wasn't truly aberrant. And my first playing... I did not manage to reach the benchmark that the game sets for you. In Uprising, they say, every round, try to set up a new haven, which is a new city, a new place to build things. I wasn't able to do that because, long story short, I wasn't able to win any fights at all in the first turn of of the game, despite the fact that I picked fights with the weakest targets that were available to me that I could reach. More on that later. And my colleague with whom I was nominally playing cooperatively, but it's a cooperative game where you can't really cooperate with your partner, you forces can't occupy the same spaces, you're on the other side of the map, so mostly you're just going to be looking at your colleague playing their own solitaire game. And he lost all his havens on the first turn and was forced to rebuild from nothing on the second round. And this was largely by virtue of the fact that all these weird special effects kept popping up. The enemies in Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor display considerable personality. And in fact, that's another one of my criticisms of the game. Most of the cool special effects come from the enemies. You have all these asymmetric player boards, but basically what it amounts to, the overwhelming majority of the time is, I have this unit that throws a single black die, it costs this combination of resources. Oh, your unit that throws a black die costs a slightly different combination of resources? Asymmetry and fancy coolness. Graphically, it's all very appealing, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're buying as many meat shells as you can, throwing them against these targets, and have more or less unmitigatable die rolls tell you whether or not the... 20 minutes of upkeep you just did results in you getting pounded in the face for the remainder of the turn. I honestly didn't think that there was much to this. It was a dice chucker surrounded by a large amount of upkeep. I don't mind dice chuckers. I don't mind games where it's all about smashing pretty units against each other and making pew-pew noises or various death noises, as the case may be. But if you're going to do that, I would rather there not be this level of component creep, upkeep creep, of managing enemies, plopping down skeletons, putting out new garrison spawning a new thing which has its own AI rules and the instant effect oh the instant effect says I lose one of my havens how nice how pleasant could you have mitigated that not at all nothing to be done about that sucks to be you better wait for next round when you might have slightly better luck and you'll have one more shot at the dice in short 
heavily luck-driven, a huge parsimony of decisions given the amount of time that you're fiddling with all of these components, and ultimately, once you actually start making your decisions, you're heavily constrained by the fact that it's so expensive to go anywhere and do anything, and then you'll probably be involved in a fight where maybe you'll get lucky, sure, but at the end of the day, that's not necessarily narratively or gameplay more satisfying than getting unlucky and having your small number of units getting eviscerated anyway. So that was Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, and uh, Walker, why don't you tell me what I'm missing? I guess I guess we're having much different experiences. Sure, I, I don't know what you're missing. I I'm just saying that I I can I can address the fact that you don't think the two people interact. There's the sea towers that are right beside your starting haven that you can teleport to any space. And if it's the case that there aren't any enemies on the way to the sea haven, theoretically, it's you could true. actually make use of those. There is definitely bad luck on a certain red tile where you could flip it and get a boss immediately we found we hit that in there's a tile that spawns a horde right away yes oh my goodness that's that, i didn't encounter that but that's terrible oh you're like i thought i was, I was wondering if maybe that's what had happened to you as well Oh, no, I'm just talking about the event at the top of the round that spawns, you know, a couple hordes or a legion and a horde or what have you, and that every tile you flip over might spawn more garrisons or more skeletons in your way. And, I mean, ultimately, you're going to be able to fight once, maybe twice around in your first round, so better hope the dice like you, because otherwise, the first fight you get into can determine that you have lost your game and will not really get to do anything interesting in the remainder of the round. And we're talking about a 90-minute game. That's not okay. It's true, but it is a little bit puzzly. You can A, follow the rules and see the paths that the Horde and or, or Legion is going to take. And then B, force them into a train type that is very beneficial to you and will help you mitigate the dice problem. That's all I can that's all I can say that can help. You have your leader uh starting abilities, you have uh you know I know what you like you said with the troops they all the, all its difference is the cost, but it, there is cards that your leader has that helps you synergize different units together. So there is a little bit of uh help when you've played it a few more times. Mark, you see you just need to play this game a few more times. <laughs> You're not playing it right. So the, the terrain benefits that you're referring to in the context of fighting legions or hordes, which are really the big bads, they're going to start with four or five high-quality dice. And you're going to spend all your starting resources, because you can only buy units at very particular times. It's a very, very regimented, upkeep-heavy, and now we're doing this phase kind of game, which doesn't speak to uprising strengths anyway. And... What you're saying is, if you do all the things right, if you maximize your your advantages, your leader ability might give you an extra die, and the train bonus might give you an extra die. And in other words, you might get a slight die advantage on, on the enemy that you're fighting, maybe, and then you still might be hosed because of the luck anyway. No, there is a, there's also there's train that changes all red dice to white, which totally nerfs one horde altogether. There are ones that will increase your ranged, will let all your riders attack in ranged, as well as clashes. And the fact that you can uh, hurt the the legions and the hordes in the firing phase and weaken them down as you go also, you know, is an advantage as well. Of course, that's assuming you your faction has the right kind of units, that you could afford those kinds of units to begin with, and this is all true. ignoring the fact that the legions and the hordes will probably also be firing on you in the ranged attack, mauling you considerably. 
just look, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a game like this, I think, where it, if you're right that the joy of Uprising such that it is, is about picking the fight on your own terms and trying to maximize the odds, there need to be more opportunities to do that, more dice rolls to sort of smooth out the probability curve, and the ability to do that proactively on your turn rather than trying to sit in the path of the enemy so they will fight you at the right time, managing the AI of the enemies. Again, the enemies are far more interesting than anything you do in the game of Uprising, which I get... There's these incredibly long lists of special abilities they have, all of which sound really interesting. It's like, oh, I wish I could do interesting stuff like this. It's just, it, it anything that the player does in Uprising is just dwarfed by a series of either randomness or upkeep considerations. And I, I really wanted to like Uprising. I was ready to like it. And uh, then the game stood up and said, no, sir, no. And that was Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. Apparently it was. Mark, I said I wasn't going to go back to G.I. Joe, but <laughs> Louie Louis has not played G.I. Joe, so we recently pulled G.I. Joe, the deck-building game, out again. This is designed by T.C. Petty III and published by Renegade Game Studios. And this game never fails to have a fantastic narrative experience. Getting down to the wire... Uh, we had the one boss out where you had to roll exactly the right number of successes. Hate that guy. We we got it perfect. Hit that. This is all in one person's turn. Last story mission was out. That boss was out and Cobra Commander. So I send my first one one leader out or a couple Joes out to hit him. He is dead. I take one Joe out in a submarine, a single Joe out. <laughs> Cobra Commander sitting in his pool, and he's like, what is this submarine? Whoosh, torpedoed. One guy takes out Cobra Commander, and then everyone jumps in the APC and finishes the last story mission. This is like when we're like one space away from the top of the thing. You know, last minute clutch turn. It was a great time. Louie loved it. G.I. Joe deck building game. No offense intended, but do you know what would be a truly terrible name for a G.I. Joe? T.C. Petty III. <laughs> I, I don't think they'd let him onto the squad. He'd need some sort of badass code name, that's for sure. It would be awesome if he was like Cobra Commander's like nemesis, because ha- having him say that name over and over again would be fantastic. <laughs> you introduced me to Batoku. Batoku is by German P. Milan from Devere Games. And I was very impressed. So when it comes to modern, medium-heavy Euro games, there's often the tendency to overwhelm things, and there's a lot of complexity and a lot of intricate turns to no real effect. And I thought the Potoku was streamlined when it wanted to be, and sort of broke when it wanted to be as well. The fundamental action selection of Botoku is very, very simple. Trying to decide what you're going to do in your turn is very, very focused, and it really puts the player in the driver's seat because the parameters of what they need to accomplish and the tools that they have to get those accomplished is very, very much in focus. It's not an endless sea of bonuses like Braga Cup at Regni. It's not a strange system of combinatorics and indirect effects like you might have in a number of other Euro games. And I really appreciated that, and it made me really be able to engage with the mechanisms in a very direct way. And even though the scoring is very Baroque, and it gets into pretty point salad type of territory, I nonetheless felt that the simplicity, comparatively, and, and 
accessibility and approachability of the action selection really improved it. Fundamentally, in your turn, you're either playing a card to your board. You're going to do this three times over the course of a turn. You're going to be placing a die on an available worker spot. Or you're going to be, as you say, sending the die across the river which is in turn is a, another specialized kind of action spot. And sometimes you won't be doing the, the river thing as much. There are trade-offs there. Sometimes you deliberately go to a space knowing that they're never going to be able to do that additional thing, giving up efficiency for the sake of action you really want to do. And all of this is on top of a great set of art assets, some of which are not used to maximum advantage. We commented that one of the cards that has beautiful pictures is designed in such a way that both on the game board and in the player boards, they're always going to be covered up. So it's really bizarre. They spend all this money, like these great pictures, and you're never going to see them when they're actually used, which is bizarre. And all of this is in service of a very sort of riffing on Japanese folklore theme. I looked it up, actually. I know what Botoku means. Botoku is actually Spanish for Orientalism. You know, news you can use. And I, I quite liked it. I am looking forward to playing it some more, seeing if different games play out differently. I have my doubts about that, but after only having played once, it's tough to be sure. And I have to say, though, that their approach to components is, is pretty bizarre. One of the first things you do when you're setting up a toku is the, the game board itself is dual-layered, and it has all these inserts where you put out specialized components based on the number of players. So a normal board game might be like, well, if you're playing with fewer than four players, put a token to cover up the spot, you're not going to be using it. But Toku says, no, we're going to make a dual layer board where there's an insert and there's going to be a special tile that you put into that insert based on the number of players you're playing. It's bizarre. It's perfectly functional. And I'm not sure if it's more or less time to set up than the alternative, but it's, it's definitely a strange choice and one I haven't seen before. So yeah, the setup of Toku is no joke. That is true. I, I did see... Well, that, but that's true of a lot of games of this number of component creep. I don't think it's so much their choices of the board. It's more because there's two different kinds of gates, and then you have to shuffle the buildings, and then there are the dragonflies and the spirits that they do, and then this, that, and the other thing, and all... Yeah. I don't know if a different board setup would have made that significantly easier. I, I do have to quibble with one thing, though, and this is one of those terminological things that I, I, I'm not going to go to the mattress for, but I think it's, it's worth noting. There's, uh, I think, a difference between two different kinds of dice worker placement. This is absolutely dice worker placement in the sense that you're using dice as workers, but the dice are merely there to denote the strength of the worker, and nothing is randomized. The dice are never rolled. They're never employed as dice. I'm, I remember the worker placement game Lancaster, where similarly, workers had a certain degree of strength. They could have used dice to indicate the strength of the worker there as well. But I don't know that I'd necessarily call it dice worker placement. I was a little bit disappointed in that, to be frank, because I do actually like it when games play with either a probabilistic element or a combinatoric element of you want dice of a certain combination, or you want pairs or doubles or triples or what have you. Uh, and here it was just, again, to track the strength of the die. That's fine. But I just want to stress that there are different kinds of dice worker placement, and Botoku is definitely of the kind where you're never rolling the dice. And leads to a slightly more deterministic procedure, which I certainly don't object to, and I enjoyed Botoku. Looking forward to coming back to it again. To address the what your next gameplay will be like, I really feel that the majority of the game is dressing, and I really feel the difference... Maybe I'm looking for your opinion here, and the difference in future gameplays will be broken down into A, what stone you start with, and what other stones are available at the beginning of the game. Those end game bonuses, yeah. Because your starting stone will sort of, 
you know, push you in a certain direction and then following stones will sort of just lightly, you know what I mean, change where you go because there's such a huge point in that initial placement that I think that is what's going to change future gameplays. Quite possibly. I, as I say, I'm looking forward to exploring the system a little bit more. I don't know how much depth there is to Botoku, but I definitely enjoyed grappling with the systems on my first play. And as I said, the action placement was sufficiently straightforward and transparent that I really felt like I was playing the game rather than just wrestling with rule systems very quickly. All right, since you torpedoed Uprising, I can't wait for this next one. We also got to play <laughs> Steam Watchers together. Now, unfortunately, in my sick, tired state, I messed up the first game, which plays more to Steam Watcher's strengths. And then it, we reset and played a different scenario for some reason. And we played a scenario that I felt didn't play to Steam Watcher's strength. It really threw it back to old school troops on a map, sort of just, you know, slog it out fighting. So, but overall, you still got a feel of the mechanisms of Steam Watchers. And so what did you think? I hated it. I thought Steam Watchers. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you're, and you're and exactly, then we got to play. No, no, hold on. Boone. No. No Walker. No. So this is, in a very real way, the same song you and I have been singing for four years. This is one of the first topics we've ever addressed. And this is something we talk about all the time when talking about multiplayer conflict games or troops on a map games, especially. There's a number of problems that, if not dealt with, can torpedo the experience of a Troops on a Map game. One of them is, if A and B fight, C wins. Steam Watchers has that in spades. Another is an inability, by virtue of the map not being dynamic enough, or the victory conditions not being dynamic enough, for two players to interact if they want to. Steam Watchers also has that in spades. It has a little bit of clever movement in terms of the naval movement. I really liked the naval movement system in Steam Watchers, for what it's worth. But I felt like it didn't quite go far enough. It gave you an additional mobility, and the opportunity cost of establishing that mobility was interesting, and I thought leveraged an interesting element of Steam Watchers' action selection mechanism. But it still didn't let you get to mix it up with the players that might be winning. If there could be a player on the other side of the map who's either winning or desperately has something that I want, and there's no way I can get to them. There's just absolutely no functional way for me to do that. And so ultimately, Steam Watchers was just a grindy, attritional mess. Like, the combat system especially struck me as absurd. It's more or less the same combat system that Dune slash... Scythe has, you do a, a, a hidden bid and then you go fight. But the problem is the economy is so tightly constrained. You have one, maybe two fights you can engage in where you're actually throwing military weight around. And at that point, you're just easy pickings for anyone to come predate on you. Worse yet, if you really want to fight, if you feel like you have to defend a territory, the only way you can do so is by throwing away massive quantities of points. And I respect the fact that thematically that makes sense. Uh, basically, in the world of Steam Watchers, there's this toxin, and you're dealing with corruption, and your units are going to die by virtue of this corruption, and you're also going to lose a whole bunch of points. That's, that's cool. That works for the theme. Fine. Whatever. But the functional equivalent of it is, is you're sitting around looking at a fight and figuring, okay, well, who's going to engage in the first fight? Oh, 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 great. Walker and Louie fought. That's wonderful. Now I can sweep in and kill both of them cheap. And I... I if, if there were a way to cleverly manipulate the turn order to make it so that you could exert that to your advantage, maybe that would be acceptable. But honestly, there isn't much of a way to do that in Steam Watchers. And, all, and 
waiting for other people to weaken themselves and swoop in later is rarely satisfactory, even at the best of times. I'm willing to take your word for it that there are other scenarios that play more to its strengths. But the fundamental combat system, coupled with a very, very parsimonious economy, coupled with a failure to deal with a lot of the standard troops on a map game problems that have been around for generations of gaming, left me very unimpressed. It's true. They they do have that morale cube that they did incorporate to try to fix that, right? Whenever there's a fight in a territory, you'll get a cube, and the, whoever's left there will get a benefit for the next fight. That only helps that in that far. territory, though, yes. Yeah, I don't think that went far enough. Yeah, it's only that one territory. I don't think it went far enough. You're right. I do. Once again, I, I don't even know if this is a, uh, a defense, but there was four people playing. Two of them were brand new. Mm-hmm. The scenario, like I said, did not complement the game, but with the three people that we played at least half a dozen games with, we started to understand that weakening one person too much, you know, will give the advantage to the other person. So you you sort of don't, you know what I mean? You pick your fights a little more strategically, you know what I mean? You don't do that kind of thing. I'm just wondering if it, it's yet another game that will will play better with more plays. So in a game without any real economic activity and without any real other mechanisms, you're saying that in this troops on a map fighting game, you shouldn't be fighting. I didn't say shouldn't be fighting. You just pick your battles more strategically. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. Quite possibly. I I don't know either. I don't know either. I only played it with three players except for that one four-player game. That's why I, I said to the our three-player group that, you know, we're not going to play this anymore. You know, I've, I've played this out at three-player. I can, you know, I've seen that ABC problem. You think it was bad in that four-player game. I think you can imagine what it's like in a three-player game. And even then we sort of, you know, were playing a little bit differently by our, you know, sixth and seventh game. But. Yes. Anyway, I am agreeing with most of the things. There are a lot of things that I really enjoy about it. Just the fact that it looks fantastic on the table. It is very interesting with all the way there's seven different armies and they all have different abilities. And the troops on a map genre seems to be getting smaller and smaller every year. Well, I will say this in its defense. This is not a reason to go back to Steam Watchers, which I don't think I I ever will. But one thing that you have stressed in previous comments about Steam Watchers, which is very true, is the arc of the game is at least superficially interesting. The fact that you start out very strong, and as the game goes on, you get weaker and weaker and more desperate. This, of course, exacerbates some of the mechanical difficulties, because then you're leaning more on the overly simplistic punishing economy of Steam Watchers. But setting all that aside, it is interesting to have that feeling of poverty being emphasized so much by virtue of the fact that you felt like what it was back in the day when your people were were healthy and happy and now it's just grueling and excruciating and even simple actions are torturously difficult as somebody who occasionally appreciates a very demanding punishing game that part i did think was superficially interesting this game was designed by mark lagroy and published by mythic games let me tell you a short story of tragedy walker there was a boy There was a boy. There was a boy riding high on largely unearned, but nonetheless sweet success. This boy had a winning streak of regicide. One game is a streak. Not a long streak, but it's a streak. And then that streak came to a crushing, disastrous end. Thus endeth my story. Yes, yes. Very sad. Don't play regicide at four players. (laughs) Moral, Moral of the story. 
I, I dis- don't play it four. I, I disagree. Four players is definitely the hardest configuration. But the thing is, if you are playing Regicide to win, I don't know that you're approaching it with the proper perspective anyway. <laughs> if you want to keep your streak going, I think you need to retire with your streak. Uh, really. But yes, if you're interested in winning, play Regicide at smaller player counts. But I mean, why not play Regicide at higher player counts anyway? It's still a blast, and it's yes. going to be crushingly difficult even at the best of times. So I think your advice is very bad advice, True. Walker. If, if your sole purpose is to win, then don't play it four players. How's that? <laughs> that is Regicide from Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale, Badgers from Mars. Next up is a game you shouldn't play at any player count. Ha! We got a chance to play Boon Lake. This is an Alexander Fister game put out by DLP Games. Alexander Fister from Isle of Sky and Great Western Trail. This is his newest from, I said DLP Games, but it actually came out by Capstone Games here in North America. And it's it has this weird, I, I'm going to say conceived decision space where it's like, what action do I take? But it's obvious which action you should take. Or after you've taken the action, how far should you move down the river? I don't really think that matters. Or <laughs> what, what victory point tile should I score? Well, I can achieve any of them, and I can pretty well see throughout the rest of the game I'm going to achieve all of them, so I'll save the best one for last and throw out a token on one of the others. <laughs> well, let's talk about those two things, because I joked that Alexander Fister, aside from Isle of Sky and aside from a couple of others' designs, most of Alexander Fister's big box, medium heavy Euro games, I think, often feel relatively similar and or interchangeable, so you can stick with the couple that you really like. My favorite is probably Blackout Hong Kong, but I'd happily play Great Western Trail. It's okay, slightly overwrought. But of course, slightly overwrought could very well be Alexander Fister's design philosophy, as opposed to, say, extremely overwrought. So, you know, he's better than a lot of his contemporaries. Boonlike has a couple of things that could potentially be interesting. But I don't think they were calibrated properly with the rest of the game. And those are the two elements that you stressed on. One of them is, how far are you going to move down the river? Our game of Boon Lake, I think, took a lot longer than was intended. The first phase of 4 dragged. And we really think it's because the game expected us to be pushing the tempo a lot further. But the problem is, without some organic or transparent pressures to do so a group of somewhat conservative players will play the game quote-unquote wrong. So the tempo of Boon Lake seems to be pretty fragile. And if people don't push the tempo properly, it's going to take too long. The second thing that you talked about, the scoring tiles. So of course, it's a Fister game. There's many, many, many different ways to score tiles. But after every scoring event, you have to pick one of the four scoring conditions. And if you meet it, you score N points where N is the, the number of the round. If you don't meet it, you lose N points where N is the number of the round. And I was very much looking forward to this as being a pressure of looking at what the next N goal was going to be and trying to figure out, okay, which one can I make now? Which one can I not make? Which one am I going to have to shove to later? But you're right. After each round, we were all looking at the tiles and saying, I could score any of these. We're all fine. Now, Part of these, this is that the two problems are interrelated. If the first round had been more brisk, if we'd been pushing the tempo of Boon Lake, then yeah, we might have had more angst with respect to meeting these goals. And or if these were actually worth more points in the final estimation. Because we're, you know, it's, it's, it's a game where the final score was in excess of 200. So the possibility of losing four points in a round, not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. But I really would have liked it if that had been emphasized 
And you really would have had some question of tempo. Instead, what we have is a standard thing of play out about a dozen cards, each of which is going to be worth three to six points, and try to fill out your tableau of this, that, and the other doohickeys and what have you. And it was it was fine, it was functional, but, you know, not anything memorable. No sense of tension, no sense of real pacing, no sense of theme. The theme is almost comical. This is like Alexander Pfister getting gun-shy. And I, we actually made fun of this when it was first announced. The theme of Boon Lake is you're a whole bunch of people settling an area and displacing no one. It's all okay. This isn't colonialism. Really, we swear. And I respect that. You know, better something comically out of place and ahistorical than something that's comically indifferent to colonialist horrors that you're still going to acknowledge, a la Mombasa. But ultimately, it left Boon Lake being a very, very, very forgettable mechanical enterprise. Yeah, it was odd. It's like a game where you really want to make sure your resources are always boosted up because it's one of these games where if someone takes an action, everybody gets to take like a sub action and you want to make sure you can maximize all these opportunities. So make sure you have a bunch of money and a bunch of settlers, pioneers, cowboys, insert resource word here. Hmm. So that part was interesting. Like I said, I really wish the river... Because I liked everything about the river. I liked how it, it marked the phases of the game. I liked how it marked the scoring phases of the game. Me too, yeah. All of that stuff. I just wish that there was more pressure on to move faster or how to move on the river anyway. Absolutely. A question about the action selection. Because it was very much rule selection. You know, you do an action, everyone else does a, a weaker cousin to the action. Although sometimes the relationship between the two actions was somewhat dim. When selecting actions, how often did you look at the resources held by your opponents and say, I'm going to pick this one because I know my opponents cannot capitalize on it? Not very often in our game, but just a couple days after that, we played it. I played a two-player, which is up on our YouTube channel. And that's when it definitely came more into play because you just oh, had one opponent to look at. And so it's like, oh, he has no cowboys. I'm definitely going to take this one now because I'll be the only one that's taking the action. And it wasn't so much in, in our game. There were, you were out pretty far ahead, but even in a 200 plus game, we were all fairly close and believe it or not, even though I had like an eight point advantage in our two player game, because I got two points for opening the box, two points for explaining the <laughs> rules and then three points for streaming it. Uh, we were one point away from each other oh, wow. at the end of the game. Yeah, it was crazy so that goes back to what you said like it's like i get three points for playing a card you know everything you do gets x points so is is that just the way it's going to play it play out every time you know because everything you do is going to get you x points and just if you just slightly more efficient then you're going to just eke out a few more points ahead of everybody else hmm tough to tell and that was our play of boone lake then we played shards of infinity and i showed mark the new expansion and what the new expansion adds are some baddies you can add to the new deck, more cards you add to the the main deck, and then it has this sort of sub-deck that will take up more space on your table. I think that we both felt, even when I played it the first time, it doesn't really add that much to the game and was sort of, you know, fluffy. Yeah, so the new expansion is called Into the Horizon, and I very much agree. I felt that the new cards were great. Look, it's a single deck, single market deck builder. More cards into the big market deck is all for the good. And some of them had interesting effects. And the side deck of new features that you could get were... 
I mean, for one thing, they didn't even have any art. I mean, it seems like a strange complaint, but here you are playing a game with lots of over-the-top sort of science fantasy artwork of these people called things like the Rift Crusher and all manner of, of Ether Blaster and, and what have you, and then they're just these solid black with text. It, it, was, it was jarring, and it really contributed to the feeling that they were ancillary. It's this deck off to the side that looks different from everything else. It's this other effect... And it just made it altogether forgettable. Say on top of that, there was no cost. It was like, oh, you hit a threshold like you normally do? Well, pick a card. <laughs> yes. And the threshold is five mastery. The the first expansion, Relics of the Future, the threshold was ten mastery. Getting to ten mastery is something you probably have to work at. Getting to five mastery is something that pro- people can probably get to do by accident. And so I... I yeah, that element I thought was forgettable. Everything about it really made it feel unnecessary. But uh, I'm not going to object to new cards. And we didn't play with the other feature in our game anyway, which is the new oppositional uh, baddies that show up in the deck in a, in, a, in a versus game. It doesn't make it feel co-op. It's just a negative effect that happens to everybody. And then you get an additional benefit if you're the one that actually goes and kills them. Uh, but I'd certainly be willing to give that element a try again. Always love Shards of Infinity. Yeah, the base game is still quick and visceral and enjoyable. As far as that formula, it remains my favorite by a mile. Of all the Realms games, of all the Ascension variants, I think it it really is a winner. It is designed by Gary Arendt and Justin Gary and put out by Stoneblade Entertainment and Ultra Pro. Our mainstream, we played Four Science, with which we gave away a complete Kickstarter copy to people that were watching the stream. And my God, Four Science, great game. Wonderful. Dexterity, time constraints, people running around the table. We played with events, Mark, hilarious. Said there was like a contamination leak or something. It's either A, run around the table three times, or everyone has to run out the room and count to 10. Hilarity. You want to check it out? You can go to our YouTube live channel and you can watch us playing for science you're like building these dna chains you have to build them with blocks uh don't watch the last game embarrassing watching me (laughs) try to get this this mark it was you know me i i have to do the most complicated thing anyway long story short i think we had like three successful games and just one loss anyway it was a great time i love everything about for science by gray fox games reading the events I can immediately imagine a certain class of players that would look down their noses at such things. And it really makes me appreciate the fact that most of the time, I don't play games with those people. It is a good thing. Now, that having been said, it's worth emphasizing again that the events and indeed much of the game has been designed with accessibility in mind. And so people who have either disabilities or various ailments or impairments... The game does have accommodation for you built into the system in the rulebook and the cards and a variety of other ways. And that I very, very much appreciate. I'm not referring to individuals who can't engage with various physical feats like either running around the table or even stacking itself. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of people who think they're either A, too good to play with blocks, or B, far too serious when playing a game with blocks to run around the table three times. These are the people that I'm talking about. And lastly, for me, I played a bunch of games with some of the listeners. I played Gaia Project and Keyflower, but I'm going to talk about Niagara because it's an old game that I used to own for several years. I don't own it anymore. This is designed by Thomas Leishing and published by Zoc Games. And it was a great throwback because I'm Board Game Arena and 
but the one in real life, you play. it's one of these games where you play on the box, and it has all of these clear discs and a double-layered. I bet you that's the first time there's a double-layered board. I'd have to look into that. Anyway, it has a double-layered board because you're sliding these clear discs down this the Niagara Falls. So they go down this river and then they fall off the end of the box. And you are creening these canoes down this river, trying to pick up gems. And then once everyone's done their movement, there's like a weather phase where you slide down all of these discs and your canoes are being pushed down towards the end. And you're trying to fight back upstream. And it's a very interesting game. And uh, you should try it out. It's on Board Game Arena. And it has this great decision where you're picking your movement. You have like, uh, I think there's paddles like one through six, and then you have a weather paddle and you're going to be playing all of these tiles until you've played them all. And it's just an interesting decision space of when to play that weather tile, either A, to get it out of your hand, or B, you know that uh, some people are going to be really close to the edge and are going to be playing high numbers because that's how far the river is going to be moving is the lowest paddle so if you see everyone downstream you know they're all going to be playing high you play your weather tile you increase the weather which increases the highest one and then they all go flowing off the end and hilarity ensues niagara those are the games we played this week now on to the news and why it doesn't matter So Mark, you played a bunch of Rift Force. I also have picked up the base game, have yet to play it, but I've read the rules. It is also on Board Game Arena, but I think it's only an alpha. Should be out soon, but it has announced an expansion already, Rift Force Beyond. So if you are a fan of Rift Force, then that is some exciting news. Then, Astronauts, the deck building game, is up on Kickstarter. So... Some people have say Aeon's End is just like Hero Realms, but no, it's completely opposite, you see, because Star Realms came out first, and then they did their fantasy, and you see that, you know, Aeon's End is doing it the opposite way. They had their fantasy out first, and they're doing sci-fi second. So if you like Aeon's End, then you got a science fiction version coming out right now on Kickstarter, Astronauts deck building game. So to a certain extent, the fate of the hobby for the past few years has been inexorably linked to the fate of Kickstarter, but there have been a variety of moments and inflection points where the commercial end of the hobby has wondered whether we could fund new board games independently of Kickstarter. Part of these are economic concerns, part of these are concerned about Kickstarter labor practices, the most recent bout of concerns has been driven by Kickstarter's weird dalliance with crypto, which we have been talking about lately, because they're going to be doing something something blocking blockchain something something reasons. Anyway, the major alternative to Kickstarter in the crowdfunding area is is increasingly GameFound. And Robinsberger, which is a major publisher that heretofore has not engaged in crowdfunding, is going to be investing 4 million euros into GameFound. And I, for one, am a fan of this development because I like GameFound as a platform. I think it's just fine and it's suited my needs rather well over the years. And I'm very, very much in favor of there being competition in the space and an alternative for those publishers and users that are dubious about Kickstarter's moves into blockchain. And so I think that this is going to be a positive development, at least in the short term. Although, who knows, there's still plenty of time for GameFound to turn out to be evil. And lastly, Warlord Games. They have one or two miniature systems, Mark. Or maybe a billion. I've lost count. But one stood out to me very recently. It's called Slain. And it's like uh, sort of small skirmishy 
old school barbarian, just hand to hand combat. It, it has a very much of a hate vibe to it. And why it stood out was because it's old Games Workshop guys. We have Andy Chambers, we have Gav Thorpe, and Roger Garrish, who did oh, a bunch wow. of Judge Dredd stuff. So these three guys, although they we- use a weird name, they don't say designed it, they say penned it. Oh. So I'm not sure what that means <laughs> and why they made that distinction. But anyway, I'll look into it more. The interesting, the, the other thing is that there's they have a starter set where you get a bunch of stuff, books, and one whole clan, and it's only $90. I thought in today's day and age, that is a kind of interesting price, like a good price for what you got in a starting set of a miniature game. For a miniatures game, absolutely. If it's a legit starter yeah. set, that's a good price. Sad to say. <laughs> so that's Slain by Warlord Games. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. And on to the topic this week, which are what games are fun, even when you're losing. So I want to I wanna start with something that has less to do with game design and more to do with the social aspect. Because I definitely know the one thing, regardless of the game, that will make losing terrible. And that is bad winners. I, I sometimes don't know what I hate more, bad winners or bad losers. But... They're both awful, and I can definitely say that a gracious winner is some of the best salve to losing that I can think of. And we've talked about this before. There are a number of things that you should do to be a gracious winner. One of them is try to empathize with the other player's position. Like, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. You were dealt a rough hand. You know, emphasize your good die rolls, emphasize their bad die rolls, things like that, and the way to... to display sympathy don't contradict them when they blame their loss on various factors outside their control you know convenient fictions that help serve to preserve social arrangements bad winners are the worst it's true and it's odd when i was looking for content for this the number of people that said i just don't have fun when i'm losing i have to win the sheer number like i'm I'm, i knew there would be some but just the fact that it was well over 50% of any comments in any sort of subject that I brought up was sort of disheartening. It is disheartening. No, I'm just saying this is just such a weird uh, topic for me because I just, I, I so just don't care about winning that, you know, I find so many other ways to have fun that it's never an issue for me. The number of people whose enjoyment of a game qua game design seem inexorably linked to their success or failure at a given session. Sorry, I shouldn't even... Honestly, I shouldn't even say success or failure. As to whether or not they beat the other players at the table, I agree with you. It's baffling. And it's really unfortunate. I I, I sincerely... No, 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 uh, no condescension. No snide remarks here. I mean this sincerely. I genuinely feel sorry for them because I think it's a dispositional thing. I don't know that you can train yourself out of it. I don't claim credit for the fact that most of the time I don't mind losing. Uh, it's just a, a preference like preferring chocolate over vanilla. It's just a dispositional outlook that I don't think you have a whole lot of control over. And it's really unfortunate. Which And it, it's, it's in sympathy to those individuals that I really wanted to look at those kinds of games, those kinds of experiences that tend to be a salve to people who hate losing that much. So what I've done, Mark, is I broke it down to types of games and then listed a bunch of examples. Sounds good to me. Does that sound good? So let's just briefly, let's 
breeze through party games because obviously they're fun no matter what. And I don't have any real examples here because there are hundreds of different party games. And just in case people say, why didn't you say talk about party games? Hey, Mark, we just talked about party games. They're fun, even when you're losing. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of these party games are based on intuitions or opinions or, or gut judgments. I'm thinking things like as disparate as Wavelength which is one of my favorite party games. Uh, the coronavirus has left me unable to play it, and I feel very bad. Although, I should notice, note, there is a new Wavelength app that I'm very much looking forward to trying, an opportunity to go back to a design that I really, really enjoy. And look, if you lose at Wavelength, if you're doing really badly, well, it's just because other people think differently. They have a different different set of, of intuitions. There's no real... I, I've never seen anyone take a loss at Wavelength really personally. Or I'm just saying, like, even in code names, when you're losing, you're still badgering the other team. You're still going to laugh at the end and talk about why did you say these things. So much fun. And it's good-natured. It's something about the structure of things like code names. Because we joked when talking about trick-taking games that at the end of uh, most rounds of trick-taking games, there's the phase of recriminations. Why did you play that card then? Why did you think I had that? In code names, or in other games like Attribute, or even the, the, the less good stuff like Apples to Apples, what have you, you can at least be like, how on earth could you make that association? It's like, well, you know... <laughs> It's it's but but it's all good nature. There, there's no venom in it, really, and I, I think it's partially because just by their very nature, people take party games less seriously. And yeah, in cases where people take losing badly, it's best to diffuse the situation as best as possible. The next step up for that, to me, would be dexterity games, because dexterity games are always fun. There's always the flicking. There's always that. Even though you're losing, you get that one great shot in, or in games like Four Science or Junk Art, where you just thrown the victory condition out the window and you just want to build something really cool. <laughs> you just don't care. I would differentiate, I agree with you, but I would differentiate between dexterity games generally and specifically stacking games. Because I think specifically stacking games are great at having fun even while you're losing. Because it leads to moments of great drama. You know, someone's either trying that move because they have to or because they're biting off more than they can chew and everything starts to wobble and you say, I can make it, I can totally make it. And then someone says, you're never going to make it just like you failed at everything else in your life. And then you say, stop bullying me, mom. I'm not crying. You're crying. And then the thing falls apart. It's great. You get that lovely moment of drama as the tower collapses, as the cards fly everywhere, as the wood starts tumbling over and everyone laughs and it's a great moment. And the fact that you caused it to happen, who cares? Flicking games, I, I agree with you largely by virtue of the same logic that we established for party games. People don't tend to take them too, too seriously. And yes, you can focus on that time when you had the great shot or what have you. And typically something happens even in the midst of your failure. But I find it a little bit has a little bit less of that magical quality that stacking games do. There's something so joyous about everything falling apart. And you being the one standing there with the piece holding a thing. Oh, well, I ruined everything. Great fun. Do, 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 do. Agreed. And then there's co-op games. Co-op games, even when you're losing, at least I know in our in our group, we want to be losing the majority of the time. So we always tend to, because you always have that one, there's always that, you know, couple of, if, if only this could happen, then we, you know, you always think there's that one chance you're going to have. It's, and it always leads to fun. It always leaves that one person that failed the role and you, you know, everyone piles on him jokingly, of course, or crazy things happen. Like, like Cthulhu, Death May Die, uh, Gloomhaven, Uprising, these cooperative games where crazy stuff happens. 
and I'm, it's still fun. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there because I, I think it really depends on what kind of co-op game you're playing. So let me let me contrast a couple from recent memory. So let's take a look at something like Siege of Rundar, for example. And I don't mean to pick on Siege of Rundar. It's designed by Reiner Knizia. I love me some Reiner Knizia. But in Siege of Rundar, you literally can't advance the victory conditions when there are some enemies that pop up. And the only way to deal with those enemies, setting aside the mercenaries, is to throw dice at the problem. And the death spiral that you can end up with is the only thing you can do is just on your turn, hurl as many dice you can at the problem and hope that the proper result comes up. And if it doesn't, the game just stalls and it's not as satisfying and I don't find it as engaging an experience. There are other games that while you're losing, things are still happening, you still have options, you still have latitude. Because this is a, a recurring theme, I think, across a lot of games that are fun to lose at and less fun to lose at. Some games, as you're losing, you, your universe narrows and you feel more and more constrained and there's just no way out. Other games, even though things are going badly, you still have a certain degree of latitude. Let me pivot, actually, to a couple of different approaches to playing Spirit Island. Because this is something that was actually striking, playing the last game of Spirit Island. Because one of the people who was playing was playing Sharp Fangs Behind the Leaves. One of the reasons why people find Sharp Fang so frustrating in Spirit Island is many of Sharp Fang's powers cannot target blighted lands. And as the game is going badly, more and more of the lands are blighted. So Sharp Fangs can be a very, very frustrating spirit to play as you're losing. On the other hand, there are spirits like Vengeance is a Burning Plague, who loves it when the land is blighted. They get more powerful when the land is blighted. And so as a result, when they're losing, they are actually at their most powerful. It's a little bit like Puzzle Strike 2, right? On the precipice of disaster, you are at your most potent. And those games are more fun to lose at, I find. And so some co-op games are much, much better at this than others, suffice to say. And I think it really relies on how much latitude you have as things are going badly. Next up, I have learning a game for the first time. So if you're just sitting down with a group and you're all learning it sort of together, there's sort of this joint, you know, you know, we're all just learning. The points don't really matter. You're just there having fun. Yeah, some people are able to do this better than others, though. This is this is sort of a temperamental thing. Like, there are a lot of people who's, you know, because the first time you're playing a game, that's when you're forming your initial impressions of the game. And I know a lot of very, very competitive-minded people who are even open and honest about it. And they say, look, my estimation of a game is very strongly indexed to whether or not I win it when the first time I play it. But I agree with you. Yeah, it's an un look. It's an unfortunate temperament. Again, I feel pity for these individuals, but it is the way of the world. Next up, tableau builders like Caverna or Agricola, where you're actually building something, or or Carcassonne, where you have these huge villages or maps, or you're creating something, and you could just tune out the score and just say, "Man, this is cool. I'm gonna make this road go over here, and I'm gonna put this sheep next to it." <laughs> oh, and a lovely little forest. Jeez, Bob Evans, that the, the crap out of this, and then <laughs> and then oh, I'm gonna have a little winding path come through here, and yeah, stuff like that. Anything where there's a sense of ownership, where you get to build something, especially if it's visually cool. Absolutely, I agree with you. There, I'd say that's one of the areas where Caverna is actually better than Agricola. Because in Caverna, the odds of someone being able to, you know, bogart out that wood that you desperately need to finish your fences, much, much lower. You've got the rubies, you know. It, it, I've talked a lot before about how Uwe Rosenberg's games can either be loose or tight. In the looser ones, it's much, much more pleasant to lose because you're at least going to be able to get something done. Uh, I'd put A Feast for Odin in the same category, Absolutely. 
All right, next up, I massed a bunch to, a bunch together here. We have your player boards, power-ups, and mini-games. So we have games like Lords of Hellas, which you have like all sorts of little things that you can be doing, like uh, uh, killing monsters or going on quests, or even though you, obviously, you see someone else that's winning, it's like, oh, well, I'm doing my own thing over here. I'm going on quests. I'm going to go kill the you know Medusa over here because that's fun to do. And so things you can do or games like Quacks of Quiglinburg where you're like drawing these tiles out of the bag and there's this big moments even though you know you're going you know you're going to explode or you know you're losing you just have this one great turn well let's go back to lords of hellas i i really sure. it, it's good that you mention it because i remember one of the great things that we love about lords of hellas which is at the end of almost every game you can look at it and say, well, we were all threatening one of the victory conditions. And that that's really satisfying. It really emphasizes how multiple victory conditions, if done well, can really preclude anyone from feeling like they're behind the eight ball. Now, maybe, again, maybe it's a fiction. Maybe that person who was trying to go murder monsters as their victory condition was never going to make it in time. They were just doomed to failure from the outset. But they were at least trying their own thing. And so you get to get to be engaged and have all the player interaction when the victory conditions melge to emerge together. And of course this being the, the topic of multiple different victory conditions working well together. I will of course mention the two games that I always mention in this context, namely successors, either third or fourth edition or Senji. It doesn't matter how badly you're being pummeled on either militarily or economically or diplomatically. You can try to pivot to one of those other routes and try to find your way forward that way and still be involved at the game. And again, you may not be able to win, but you're going to be able to make progress. You're going to be able to make forward movement and you're not going to feel like you're just being shoved out of this experience. Another mini game would be like Feast for Odin where you're like Tetrising up your board. You might just say, I, well, you know, what this is for points? I don't care. I've covered my <laughs> whole board. Or too many bones. The, the the power up thing where you're you're just you know you're you're invested in your character. You're just you know figuring out how all their powers work together. You're just getting more dice. You're you're manipulating your board up, and it's like oh this is for a game. You know you're just invested in that character and how they progress and the different things they can do once they get more dice. That's fascinating. I actually have too many bones written down here in my notes as a great example of a game that does not do well in terms of managing the losing experience because the way too many bones ends in failure is you just time out. Typically, after bashing your head against the same failed combat encounter conditions over and over and over again. You can very easily get into a death spiral. You can very easily get into a situation where failure is compounded upon failure. And unlike, again, that great, those great examples of stacking games that we were talking about, there's no hilarious or interesting thing that happens at the end. You just run out of time. I don't find that a good way to lose a game, and I don't find it a satisfying way to lose. It's it's definitely, I agree with you, it's a bad end condition. But for someone who's just learning it for the first time and, and wants to, you know, invest their time in the character, it might be still fun for them to flesh out that character. That is an excellent point. Even in the face of that bad end condition, you can still fiddle around with your own unique abilities and marvel at the cool character you've made. That is true. Next up, I have super, super, just heavy theme. So if the theme is so strong... That it doesn't matter if you're losing, you're just invested in the story, you're being pulled along like dungeon lords, 
these heroes are coming down through your dungeon. You're, you're training these monsters up. You're feeding them. You're making your little dungeon. And even though you're getting crushed every time, it's sometimes funny. It's sometimes interesting. I also have mechs versus minions here because this hits everything. Great theme. It has the power-up thing where you're, even though you're losing, you say, look what I'm doing this turn. I've made this like crazy robot or, you know, and it, uh, it, and the fact that it's cooperative as well hits all the things. Same thing with Dinosaur World or Dinosaur Island. It's just this, the, even though you're losing, you're having fun, you know, building your little dinosaur park, populating it with these dinosaurs, driving your Jeep around, even though you're losing, the theme is so heavy that it just keeps you in the mood of the game. Dungeon Lords is a good example, actually, because I find Dungeon Lords less interesting when everything is going well. If you're able to defeat all the heroes in the first room and they're not able to make any progress and your dungeon is so well designed, I actually find it a little bit deflating. It's not as interesting, which actually leads to, I think, the paradigmatic example of a game that, I, that to me anyway, is more fun when you are losing, and that's Galaxy Trucker. Galaxy Trucker played super well when your, your, your ship is able to meet all challenges and doesn't lose any parts in a run. It's still really fun, but not as fun as when things go catastrophically wrong and suddenly all your engines have fallen off and your alien got ejected out into space and you're desperately limping along to the finish line. Uh, Galaxy Trucker, to me, is, is I think the paradigmatic example of a reasonably rules-intense game where failure is more entertaining than success. And next up, I have sandbox games. I only have one in here. I know there's several, but I have Zaya, Legend of a Drift System, so games that are just so open that you can pretty well go on your own little adventure and, and disregard what everyone else is doing. It's like, I am going to be a space trucker. I'm going to shift goods and keep my wife back at home happy while I, you know, earn an honest wage. Walker, we're Canadians. I think talking about truckers is a little triggering right now. Probably. So, yes, let's let's skip that and let's go to something else. I'm going to be a space policeman and arrest the bad guys and get home safe. <laughs> if I had ever had any fun with Zaya, I'd probably agree with you. Uh, I'd probably put under the you know multiple victory conditions. I, again, I find th- I'm still looking the- for that sandbox game that I really enjoy. I haven't found it yet. True. Not, yeah, I'm not, not I'm not necessarily saying because I've also had bad experiences with all sandbox right. games. But you can see what I mean where there Absolutely. are pockets, pockets of the game that you can lose yourself in and have your own fun in. Absolutely. I think there are Euros that do a really good job of that. We've talked about a bunch of them, many of them by Uwe Rosenberg. I think there are more cohesive games that have lots of multiple different subsystems and paths to victory that we've talked about, like Successors and Senji and Lords of Hellas. Uh, but sandbox games, at least the traditional ones that we're talking about, Western Legends, Zaya, Legends of a Drift System, uh, just still looking for that good one. All right, that's pretty well the end of the sort of types of games. Then I had just sort of some statements here, like uh, when you've given yourself a, a certain goal in a game, Like I often do, like when I'm learning a game for the first time, I say, okay, well, I'm just going to work on this one thing, or as long as I hit this one milestone, then I've succeeded in what I want to do and therefore still make it fun. Or a game like Eclipse, where you can zoom off to your own little pocket of space away from everyone else and say, this is, I'm just going to do my own little thing over here, let those guys fight it out, Hmm. and... 
Well, Eclipse, I think, is a good example of more like the Agricola situation because you get to look at your ships that you've customized. Uh, forget forget your space empire. Send your space yeah, your space empire is whatever. You know, sure it'll feed your people. Sure it'll give you more points. But the ability to look at your customized fleet and see, well, this one I buffed up on the armor, and this one the computer situation is really good, and this, well, managing the drive situation was a bit tight. That to me is the level of personalization. But going back to your comment about you know picking your own personal goal and trying to achieve that, that's one of those areas of rules explanation that I think I could do a lot better in. I've commented before that there are a number of deficiencies in my rules explanation. I'm pretty bad at selling theme. Uh, but another area that I, I where I really appreciate a good rules explainer is they're able to go to a new player especially in games where it's clear that the new player can't win, and be able to give them realistic and plausible and appropriate guideposts that give them a sense of accomplishment. It's like, okay, well, here, here are all the rules, here's everything, but if you're able to do the following thing, like, I don't know, if you're able to upgrade to a stone house, that's probably not a good example because that's not really a good benchmark. If you're able to clear this point, if you're able to reach this, air, uh, th this point, that's really good for a first play. And I, that can be really helpful both as a player just in terms of understanding what the realistic horizons of success are, and also for giving people that sense of accomplishment. Agreed. Then there are some games that when you lose so bad that you win. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember any of the titles, but you know the ones I mean. That it says that like if you lose all of the tricks, then you actually gain thirteen points and you actually win the game. Oh, shooting the moon. Okay. Yeah, when sometimes when you're losing so bad, you can like say, "Look at oh, it's like wait if I if I lose really badly, then I get you know the the overall victory." The only ones I can think of are trick taking games, actually. But that's that's an interesting counterexample. Yeah, I, I think there are a few others, but I couldn't. I just couldn't think of them at the time. Yes, I did really really terribly that hand. I I really did badly, but I almost won the whole thing. Exactly. And then I, the next one is, do you really need to know that you're losing? This is why they have hidden scoring. Right. right. So I don't want to know that I'm losing. I don't know how many points people have. I'm just going to have fun anyway. And then all the points will be revealed at the end. It's like, oh, I lost. <laughs> well, that actually reminds me of a game that's, that's really pretty bad at hiding all that despite the fact that it has hidden scoring. I'm talking about Tigers and Euphrates, the greatest game ever made. If you're losing at Tigers and Euphrates, usually it's pretty obvious that you're losing. And it can be really hard. Tigers and Euphrates is a famously inaccessible game. The rules aren't terribly complicated, especially not by modern standards. But if you're getting hammered, the thing you have to do, and you learn this after a few plays, is to just start over somewhere else. Just accept the fact that you're never going to get back into that kingdom. Find a new area on the board, either that's, that's either underdeveloped or undeveloped, and just start again and accept that. It's really hard for new players to accept that. And sometimes it just feels like you can't do anything and you're just frozen out of the map for all the losing that you're doing. And I completely respect how some people find that frustrating. So to, to some extent, when I think of the game that really exacerbates the sense of not fun to lose, Tigers and Euphrates is sadly one of them. Next up I have, knowing that will be over soon, sometimes <laughs> that it can make it more fun. Because sometimes when, when games are very swingy, because a lot of games... Uh, take into consideration catch-up mechanisms or keeping everyone close. And games that throw that out the window are usually games that are much shorter. So knowing that it'll be over soon, sometimes it's like, okay, well, I lost this time. We're probably going to play again, and I'll know what to do differently. So that, you know, 
can make the experience more fun because I've learned I learned something this game. We're going to play again quickly, and then now I can incorporate what I've learned into the next game. So Absolutely, it it more interesting, and, fun. And this dovetails with one of the cultural aspects that I wish more people would accept, which is the legitimacy of concession. Especially in two-player games, but even sometimes in multiplayer games, the willingness to be able to be like, well, the writing's on the wall, it's obvious how this is going to end. Uh, either, let's just call it, and you could even start another session of the same game or move on to something else, especially if you're just going to get punished for the rest of it. And this is something that's, ver- that's more common in concepts than it is elsewhere, but it's definitely something that I appreciate. And then for me personally, it's just looking around the table and, and noticing that everyone else is enjoying the experience and not one person has like completely run away with it or just seeing that everyone's still enjoying the game still makes me have fun even though I'm losing. I said, damn, Walker, you're so broad-minded and empathetic and noble. Your magnanimity is just, it's just so incredible, Walker. Oh, I forgot moral victory. Moral <laughs> victory. Right, I, I forgot, I skipped one because that's what I usually do in games. Remember, you, you heard me say it more... More times than one. Moral victory. I, I fed all my people in this game. I, I win by moral victory alone. Most of my associations with you saying moral victory are after my winning a game, you flipping the table, grinding my face in the dirt while screaming moral victory over and over. Is that what you're talking about? Funny because it's true. <laughs> I would just like to add one category of game that is very controversial. And I, I feel like very often you bounce off of them which is games where you have to ride the chaos. And I feel that it is usually easier to accept that you're losing because in games where you're just trying to ride the chaos, you have to accept that maybe your fortunes will reverse. I'm not just talking about games where your luck is mostly decided by throws of the dice, but those games absolutely apply. Like Llama Dice, it's okay to be losing at Llama Dice because, you know, next round you might roll really well. I'm talking about slightly more sophisticated games that are nonetheless about seizing those moments in the midst of chaos. Things like Combat Commander, things like Cosmic Encounter, where you have to be always ready for that moment to uh, those inflection points to seize initiative. And until then you might very well be losing very badly, but maybe you'll be able to reverse it. So after going through all this stuff, I just had a little piece of, I think I got a good piece of advice. Well, Locker, it actually reminds me of some sage words you once told me. You looked over the table and you said, you know, Mark, when playing a game, the goal is to win, but it is the goal that is important, not the winning. And then you said, I, j- I just thought that up. And I said, wow, Walker, you sound really smart and really wise. And you said, yes, Mark, that is because I am both of those things. I'll remember that moment it's for the so rest of my true. life. Yeah, it was. those are definitely my words yeah. from my mouth. 100%. Yeah, nobody else. And with that excellent conclusion, thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at the games you like. For other contact information, you can find us on sowronggames.com slash contact. We are available at many social meds, as the children say, and a variety of other media. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.